We're just warming up to the coming kingdom. Amen? Amen. And so I don't really know what kind of a day you've had today. Part of me hopes it was a lousy day because it's going to get so good. (laughs) And if you had a great day, it's going to get even better. We are in Ezekiel chapter 40 tonight. So you can open up your Bibles and turn there, Ezekiel chapter 40. And I am so thankful to the Lord for giving us this Word. And Father, I want to praise Your name tonight. When we sing these songs of praise, and we lift up voices and song to You. And we get so excited when we think about You coming, shining like the sun. We, we long to hear the trumpet call. Long to be caught up and taken out of these mortal bodies and, and into our eternal state in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. Truly can't wait for that moment, Lord. Knowing how good it is going to be. And that every care and worry and frustration and hurt, every wound, every sickness, every ailment, Father, every problem that plagues us in our physical state in this world will be over and done with and we will live with You forever. Hallelujah. We are so excited for that. And Lord, clearly You wanted us to think about these things. You wanted us to look forward, to anticipate, to live our lives uh, loving Your appearing, as Paul put it. And I love it all the more after reading through these chapters and thinking about these things. So thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your wisdom in putting to paper uh, Your Word. And Lord, we long for it to be written on our hearts and in our minds. But we we thank You for Your Word printed up that we can open and study these things and think about them as well and be encouraged. Would You bring, Father, a great encouragement to this fellowship tonight and bless the ears of those who listen. Give us ears to hear what Your Spirit is saying to us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my birthday was Saturday. Happy birthday! Thank you. That's all I wanted. Good night. We sat down and, and watched one of my favorite uh, movies, recent movies, part of a previous trilogy that is now a new trilogy. You probably know what I'm talking about, but it's The Hobbit. There and back again. I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's a favorite of mine. And so we had the first movie, The Hobbit, and sat down with Corey and Hayden, and Cheryl and I will watch it, and I've seen it a few times before. But in the movie, the character Gandalf makes a statement to Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, The Hobbit, early on. He says, all good stories deserve embellishment. (laughs) I love that line. The kingdom of God is far more than a good story. And the kingdom of God requires no embellishment. God doesn't need any help. You know, the stories of our lives and the things that we share, sometimes we like to expand them a little bit. The the typical, the common fish stories, you know. Oh, I caught a fish that was this big. Right? That big. It was huge. I'm telling you. We love to do that kind of thing. Well, the Word of God requires no embellishment. It doesn't need addition. As a matter of fact, the Word of God denies embellishment. God Himself says, you don't add to My Word. You don't take away from My Word. My Word is what it is. And it doesn't need your help. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. 
Well, that's pretty clear. Pretty straightforward. Well, tonight we come to the last section of Ezekiel's prophecies and some amazing descriptions and, and descriptions and features of the coming millennial kingdom. He gets right into it. Tragically, some have called this the continental divide of biblical interpretation. The continental divide of biblical interpretation. The nine chapters from Ezekiel chapter 40 through Ezekiel chapter 48 have become an absolutely polarizing section of Scripture. In fact, it's included with a couple other polarizing passages you may be familiar with. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. The virgin birth of Emmanuel. And there are absolutely polar opposite views of that. Those who try to claim that the word virgin there is just young maiden. And of course I always ask the question, well if it's just a young maiden, why is it a sign? Young maidens can have babies all the time. It's a virgin who can't so often have a baby. In fact, as far as I know, it really only happened once. So it's a sign, Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, and running through chapter 53, the song of the suffering servant. A servant song that is so explicit to the crucifixion of Jesus that along with Psalm 22, those two absolutely astounding descriptions of the cross. And so those who would not believe that they're about the cross would take polar views or would stand against it or would try to divide over it. So you've got Ezekiel 40 through 48, Isaiah 7:14 and Isaiah 52 and 53. And in the Hebrew scriptures, those are the three big ones that people tend to get divided over. These prophecies force the issue between those who would take an allegorical perspective of scripture, kind of make it say whatever your particular tradition or theology says. I've told you before, that's extremely dangerous because once you start making Scripture allegorical, you can make it say whatever you want. I mean, go ahead, you can design your own religion. Off those pages of Scripture just saying, well, this means that and this means that and this means differently than perhaps what Christianity would teach. So there's the allegorical perspective, which is also the amillennial perspective. If you've heard of amillennialism, it's the belief that the millennial kingdom... We talk about a lot here at the bridge because it's talked a lot about in Scripture. The Millennial Kingdom is a generic metaphor for the church age. For the last 2,000 years, even though Revelation 20 refers to it six times as a thousand year kingdom. But an amillennialist will say, yeah, but that's just a big number to kind of say the span of time. And so it's, it's an allegory. It's a metaphor. The Continental Divide. This divide happens between those who would take the Bible literally and those who would take it allegorically. The literal view would also be the premillennial view. There are five perspectives that have been thrown out there about Ezekiel 40 through 48. There is the historico-literal view. The historico-literal view, which states basically that this whole nine-chapter section was fulfilled previously in Solomon's temple. That it's just a... An encouraging restatement by Ezekiel of the first temple, the glorious temple, the temple that had been destroyed some 14 years prior to him giving this prophecy, as we will see. The historical literal view. There's also the historical ideal view that says this predicts a future good for Israel and perhaps that this was the temple that should have been built by the exiles. You know, that these plans were laid out and when the exiles came back, that perhaps if they had followed these directions, that would have been a good thing. But they really didn't, and we know they didn't. And so, 
It's kind of this historical ideal view. Thing is, there are features here that would have been impossible to achieve by the exiles. As you'll see in Ezekiel 47, it would have been impossible for the exiles to come up with a way for a river to come flowing out of the temple and down into the valley. The third one is the Jewish theory. And the Jewish theory is that the exiles actually built this temple to the best of their ability, though it fell woefully short. And Messiah, when he would come, would ultimately fulfill it to the letter, would would bring it up to speed. There's the Christian allegorical view which was posited by men like Martin Luther. The Reformers were big on this view. And they believed and taught that the whole section is simply symbolic for the church in the Gospel age. A lot of teaching back in those days about this just simply being a metaphor, a picture of the church. Now I think there are things we can learn, things that we can understand and, and ways that we can be taught and grow through studying this and applying it to our lives here in the, in the age of grace. But I completely disagree with the Christian allegorical view. There is number five, the right view. <laughs> there is the literal kingdom view. And you know, when I say that type of thing, and you laugh, and, and some of you may even laugh nervously because you think that's awfully arrogant, Rick. It's not arrogant when it's God's word. When you're just saying, it is what it is. In fact, if anything, it's simplicity. Rick isn't smart enough to come up with any other view, so he just has to believe it is what it is. And that's right on the literal kingdom view. Without allegory, without embellishment, without addition of any kind, it just is what it is. God means what He says. And He says what He means. The literal view. So my encouragement to you as we study this tonight is to take God at His word not try to read into it anything other than what he intended for us to understand, and specifically what he intended through Ezekiel for the exiles, those Jewish exiles, to understand. With all that in mind, uh, I love this quote. Charles Feinberg said, The more one studies the detailed measurements of these chapters, the more the conviction grows that Ezekiel was speaking of a literal plan which is meant to be literally implemented in future times. And that's the thing you'll see, and it's really hard to get around. This is so detailed and so specific that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to make it anything other than just what it is. Verse 1 of chapter 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me there. In the visions of God, He brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. So He brought me there. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you. For you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. Okay, so it's 25 years into Ezekiel's exile at this point. We come now to the last prophecy of Ezekiel. It is 21 years into his prophetic ministry. And it's 14 years precisely, Ezekiel tells us in the first verse, after the fall of Jerusalem. That should put us right in 572 B.C. 
So if you want to note that. Now it's interesting, different commentators will say anywhere between 572 to 574, and it's because we're so afraid of being wrong. But I believe it's right there in 572. If the temple fell in 586, 14 years from 586 is 572. It's kind of obvious. Again, I'm, I'm simplistic about this stuff. But uh, it partially depends on what Ezekiel means by the beginning of the year. Note that in, in verse 1. It says, at the beginning of the year. Well, that's literally, if read in the Hebrew, at the Rosh Hashanah. At the head of the year. And so the Jews, just recently, here in the month of Tishri, celebrated Rosh Hashanah. We talked about that a few weeks back. It means the head of the year. The Feast of Trumpets. The problem is that the Feast of Trumpets was celebrated on the first day of the month and not on the tenth day. So, so this can't be on the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, but there are a couple of possibilities as to the precision of this date. If it's the civic calendar, the civic calendar, well, that begins, the month of Tishri is the last month on the civic calendar, and then it begins the new civic year for the Jewish people. What's interesting about that is if it is the civic calendar, that that would put this on the 10th day of Tishri, which is, according to Leviticus 23, the Day of Atonement. So it's possible that Ezekiel received this vision from the Lord on the Day of Atonement, which would be very special. It's also possible that if this is based on the religious calendar, which was God's calendar. See, God said the first year of the the first month of the year was the month of Nisan. So that would put this on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. What's happening then? The, pe- the preparations for the Passover begin. So either date, it's significant. It's interesting that it falls at, at times that were very special to the Jewish people. And the Lord chose this day on the 10th of this month as a significant day to reveal His future temple. He said He was taken, Ezekiel, to a high mountain. Some commentators say, oh, a high mountain in Israel must be Mount Hermon. Well, the temple never sat on Mount Hermon. And this is not talking about Mount Hermon, it's talking about Mount Zion. He is taken to the high mountain of the mountains of Israel, and we've done a lot of talking about those mountains recently, have we not? And then Jerusalem is the high mountain, according to Ezekiel, of all the mountains in that central mountain range of Israel. So he's in Jerusalem here. And he meets... A surveyor. Kind of a shadowy, mysterious surveyor. We see this, this man here in verse 3. And his appearance is like bronze. He had a line of flax. And that's for longer measurement. And then he had a rod, which was a measuring rod. And he's standing there ready to measure things. So he had like a tape measure and a rod with him to measure things out for Ezekiel. Who is this shadowy surveyor? One hint would be from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2, he meets the same man. The same man there to measure out and to show Zechariah some things, to give measurements to some things. And I, for one, believe this may very well be a Christophany, that this is one of those Hebrew Scripture appearances of Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, appearing here to Ezekiel. Why do you think that, Rick? Well, it's interesting Bronze is the color of judgment. And along with the temple, here comes the judge. And he, was, he had the appearance like the appearance 
of bronze. And that's all Ezekiel specifically says about him here. But Daniel makes this comment. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, we know talking about Jesus, about Messiah, said his body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, and his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. So obviously wearing a robe where you could see his skin, arms and feet, what you saw was skin that was of the color of bronze. Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, John saw the same thing. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. But there's another reason I think this could possibly be Jesus. Skip ahead to Ezekiel chapter 44. And look at verse 1. Ezekiel 44.1 Speaking of this man, it says, Then he brought me back by way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, Note that. The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be open, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as a prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. And then he, verse 4, speaking of this man, brought me back by way of the north gate to the front of the house. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And again, the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord. So what's interesting here is the surveyor of the temple speaks with the voice of the Lord. And Ezekiel ascribes lordship to this measuring man, to this surveyor. I think we have some clues here that are are beginning to add up. And we also know, in addition to being the surveyor, that Jesus is the builder, or perhaps rebuilder, of the temple. He is the master craftsman. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, he will build the temple of the Lord. So it makes sense that he would have the measuring lines, that he would know the blueprints well, and that he would be here now to share these blueprints with Ezekiel, because he's the builder. So the surveyor and the builder, perhaps a Christophany of Jesus. Back in chapter 40, note this also in verse 4, the charge that is given to Ezekiel by this man is, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you. The phrase give attention there in the Hebrew, you might note this, is literally set your heart upon. Set your heart upon all I'm going to show you. And you have right there in that verse a beautiful and perfect, I think, description or prescription of how to study the Word of God. To see with your eyes and to hear with your ears and to set your heart upon. See, a lot of, a lot of theologians see with their eyes. A lot of churchgoers hear with their ears. But if it stops there, it is nothing more than hard, cold information. You've got to set your heart upon it. See with your eyes. Hear with your ears. Set your heart upon it. That's not only how to study the Word of God, it's how to receive revelation. I didn't say anything to the group we were praying over here uh, earlier this evening. And I got a vision. And it was a very, very clear vision. And I just kind of sat on it and, and prayed about it for a few minutes. 
And it was a vision of the fireside room in our new building, filled with 40 or 50 people praying on a Wednesday night. And I thought, that's good. That's good. And the Lord told me, pray for that. So I did. And those of you who are here praying heard what I prayed. That, Lord, You would give our fellowship such a passion for prayer and such a heart to be in Your presence that we would be showing up an hour early, two hours early, just to pray so that we'll be ready for worship and to feed on Your Word. And I know... Don't anybody take that as as a guilt trip. Because I know some of you can barely get here from work. I get that. I totally do. You can stay after if you want. (laughs) I just, you know, I I guess it's the older I get, the more old school I get. And I I long for the days where the entire Sunday was spent in the Lord. You know, Uh, where the church services went three and four hours. And you're going, oh man, oh man, no, Rick, no. (laughs) But this whole idea that, that... And I'm so thankful that the Lord is building us a house uh, where this kind of thing can take place, where there's there's room for it. And so that's, I believe, coming. If the Lord tarries and doesn't come first, I believe there's a day coming where we're going to see large groups of people just showing up to pray and prepare and hear from the Lord before then we enter into worship and the study of the Word. Bottom line is you got to apply the heart of faith. If you're just listening with your ears, if you're just seeing with your eyes, but you're not applying, you're not setting your heart upon it, you're going to have trouble getting it. And Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's why we study the Word, is to set our heart upon the things of God. Verse 5, continuing on, he says, Behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple, all around. And the man's hand, or in the man's hand, was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a hand breadth. And so he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. Let me give you a little explanation so you can follow this through, because there's a lot of cubits here. It's cubit after cubit. The whole idea here, this measuring rod that he's holding in his hand, we're given the length of it. Now, a common cubit in the Hebrew Scriptures was roughly 18 inches. But there was also a cubit called a long cubit, which was 21 inches. And I think we're probably talking about the long cubit. Now, it's just a surmise. I can't say absolutely. It doesn't have to be dogmatic. But I think we're talking about a long cubit here, 21 inches. But in addition to that is the hand breadth. What's a hand breadth? Well, it's not finger down to the base of the hand. It's a hand turned sideways. It's the four fingers. That's a hand breadth. So roughly three inches. So you put it together, and what you have here is the cubit of 21 inches and a hand breadth of another three. You have 24 inches. All right? 24 inches, and the, the measuring rod itself is six cubits and a hand breadth. Not just one hand breadth, but six cubits and six hand breadths, one hand breadth for each cubit. What does that mean? 12 feet. Okay, so we have a measuring rod here. He's standing here holding a rod that is 12 feet in its length. And that's the measuring rod that he's going to use throughout. Part of the reason I think that it is probably the long cubit being applied here is because the number 12 in the Bible speaks of the divine government of God. And this is the measurement of the building of the temple. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. The whole idea of of government. And this is the seat of government in the Millennial Kingdom, this temple of the Lord. 
And oftentimes that long cubit was used in building and in construction. And so I think that's what we're looking at here, a 12-foot rod. And that being the case then, you can figure this out as we go on, but the thickness of the wall is one rod and the height of the wall is one rod. That means the wall was 12 feet wide by 12 feet high. Okay, So it actually starts to get easier to figure out as we go. It's interesting that he's so specific here because as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a, a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's not a God of confusion. And I found, interestingly, and I think the reason I was drawn to that verse, is the more I read through this, even cubit by cubit by cubit, the more I felt at peace with the divine construction of the Lord. That He has an order to things. That He has things planned out well in advance. And that as we go through this this temple, we see all that. Verse 6. He says... Then he went to the gate which faced east and went up its steps and measured the threshold of the gate one rod in width and the other threshold one rod in width. So 12 feet. The threshold was 12 feet. The other threshold was 12 feet. And he's going to continue on down through here with massive uh, specifications. The guard room was one rod long and one rod wide and there were five cubits between the guard rooms. So you have these 12 by 12 guard rooms with a cubit in between them. And the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate facing inward was one rod. Verse 8, he measured the porch of the gate facing inward, one rod. He measured the porch of the gate, eight cubits, and its side pillars, two cubits. And the porch of the gate was faced inward. Are you with me? I know most of you are going, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it, I see that. Verse 9, he measured it. The porch of the gate, eight cubits, its side pillars, two cubits. And the porch of the gate was faced inward. Verse 10, the guard rooms of the gate toward the east... Numbered three on each side. Note that, the gate toward the east. Now he's going to begin to do this, to measure walls and guard rooms and spaces in between and to measure out this whole area. He does it from verse 6 all the way through verse 37. I want to point out to you a couple of things in this. Uh, Note down there at the end of verse 16, it says there were windows all around inside and on each pillar were palm tree ornaments. And down at the end of verse 22, its windows and its porches and its palm tree ornaments had the same measurements as the gate which faced toward the east. Verse 23 also mentions the gate on the east. Uh, Verse 26 mentions again the palm tree ornaments. Verse 32, he talks about coming into the inner court toward the east. Down there in verse 34, he talks about the porches of the outer court and the palm tree ornaments on the side pillars on each side and its stairway had eight steps. Down in verse 37 again, he mentions the palm tree ornaments, and that got us all the way through verse 37. So we're moving at quite a clip tonight. (laughs) I could go verse by verse from reading through this. I encourage you to do that, just to think it through. But these measurements indicate a very specific and literal design. If God intended for this to be an allegorical picture, why all the cubits? Why the specificity that is, by the way, so precise that architects who have studied this plan state it can be easily drawn to scale and produce a magnificent blueprint for the, for the temple? These specifications were not fulfilled historically in the second temple that was built by the returning exiles. Nor should they be read allegorically. 
God goes to the trouble of giving such exact guidelines to indicate the temple complex. We ought to just take Him at His word. This is what the temple in the kingdom will look like. Now, I pointed out all the palm tree ornaments. Does God just like palm trees? Is He like partial to Hawaii? What's the deal with all of that? And maybe He does. I mean, He created them. But I think it's interesting in the Bible to recognize what palm trees signify. And there are four things that we see outstanding in the Scriptures. Number one, beauty. Palm trees are a symbol of beauty. Solomon's song, chapter 7, verse 7, your stature, he says, to the bride is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. Now, I don't know if any women would really want to be described that way, but it was, you know, it's just kind of the culture, I guess. But a picture of beauty. <laughs> did he really just say that, honey? Yeah, he did. Just keep it worry. Psalm 92, verse 12 talks about not only beauty, but palm trees being a picture of righteousness. Psalm 92.12, the upright or the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall still, still be full of sap, which is good news for my children, and very green. <laughs> And I love just that verse, Psalm 92. That's a teaching all by itself, a beautiful one. The whole idea of being planted in the house of the Lord. If you want to flourish, you need to be planted in the house of the Lord. Which to us, we can make the allusion to the body of Christ. You need to be planted in and among other believers. In the house of the Lord. Worshiping in corporate worship, yes. And in corporate fellowship and corporate teaching. But beyond that, we need to be a part of the corporeal body of Christ. And if we're planted there, we grow in righteousness there. And I love the fact that as we age in the Lord, we become more fruitful, not less fruitful. There is no earthly retirement plan for the servants of God. Your retirement is heavenly. And the Bible tells us that the longer we walk with the Lord and the more we are planted in the courts of the Lord, the more fruitful our lives become. And as, as I get older, that excites me. My body may be slowing down, but my spirit is speeding up. And the fruitfulness of my ministry, I I pray for all of us, will grow more and more as the years go by, as the Lord allows. It says we're full of sap. What in the world does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're sappy. It means that we're well-nourished. The older you are in the Lord, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more nourished you become by the Lord. What a marvelous thing. And it also says we remain green, and I think that means we're just teachable. We don't know it all. We're not all dried up and brittle because we figured it out. We're teachable people, even in our older years, and the palm tree portrays that, portrays righteousness. The palm tree also portrays royalty, as in the the triumphus, the, the march of triumph, or the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. As we see in John 12, 13, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, went out to meet Him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so there's this sense of royalty and triumph. The sense of victory. Victory not only for Jesus, but for His people. 
We see that in a very poignant passage in Revelation 17, verse 9, where John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And these people with the palm branches are those who are victorious out of the tribulation. Those who were not victorious as to be called up in the rapture of the church. Those who missed out on the rapture for a lack of faith or awareness or ignorance or whatever. But who come to faith in Jesus very quickly in that first three and a half years of the tribulation and they will lose their lives for it. Martyrdom is the end game for all those who come to faith in the tribulation. But what a marvelous martyrdom because they end up victorious as seen in holding those palm branches. Palm branches are also a vital component of the Feast of Tabernacles which we will celebrate annually in the Millennial Kingdom. So it makes sense that there would be uh, palm tree ornamentation all over the temple and engraved throughout. So the exact specifications. Also note, I pointed out the east gate. Mentioned in verse 6, 10, 22, and 23 already. It will be mentioned many more times. The eastern gate. Spence, you know this. In fact, several of you do. Sitting on the Mount of Olives, directly across from the Temple Mount. One of the most profound experiences I think you can have is to sit there and to look at the Temple Mount and see the Eastern Gate facade. And it is a facade. It's not the actual gate. The actual gate is directly beneath it. And archaeology has actually shown that to be the case. But to look at that Eastern Gate, what is the big deal with it? It's the Gate of Messiah. It is the gate. And we're going to talk about this in depth on Sunday. It is the gate Jesus will walk through when He returns. And so it is just a stunning thought to see that and know well, well, Rick, if the gate's underground, how in the world is Jesus going to walk through it? Come back Sunday. And we will talk specifically about that. Verse 38. Picking up in verse 38, a chamber with its doorway was by the side pillars of the gates. And there they rinse, note this, the burnt offering. Huh. In the porch of the gate were two tables on each side on which to slaughter the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And on the outer side, as one went up to the gateway toward the north, were two tables. And on the other side of the porch were two tables. The four tables were on one side next to the gate, or eight tables uh, on which they slaughter the sacrifices. Verse 42. For the burnt offerings, there were four tables of hewn stone, a cubit and a half long, a cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high on which they lay the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering and the sacrifice. The double hooks, one hand breadth in length, were installed in the house all around, and on the tables was the flesh of the offering. Continue on, verse 44, From the outside to the inner gate were chambers for the singers in the inner court, one of which was at the side of the north gate, with its front toward the south, and one at the side of the, and it says south gate, note this in your Bibles, that word should be east. I couldn't figure out why it's translated south there, because the Hebrew word is east. So it's at the side of the east gate, facing toward the north, and I think 
probably they just wanted to set it across from the north. So they figure, well, it's not east. East isn't across from north, it's south. But it's from the east gate looking over to the north, which would be over to the right. Right? Right. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Verse 45, he said to me, this is the chamber which faces toward the south, intended for the priests who keep charge of the temple. But the chamber which faces toward the north is for the priests who keep charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok who are from the sons of Levi, and they come near to the Lord to minister to Him. He measured the court, a perfect square, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits wide, and the altar was in front of the temple. Now stop there for a minute. The altar was in front of the temple, right where it should be, because that's where the altar always was. The only change now is for this altar, we'll see there are steps that go up from the east side, whereas they used to go up to the altar from the south side in Solomon's temple and in Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple. And this one you just go up to the east, but it's right there where it should be, in the courtyard, right in front where the sacrifices take place. So in these exact specifications, and with the recognition of the east gate, we now see the established sacrificial system. In the Millennial Kingdom. Understand that. Based on Ezekiel's prophecy, in the Millennial Kingdom, the sacrifices will resume. They will begin to take place once again. Now we know the sacrificial system is going to take place in the Tribulation. Because Daniel 9.27 tells us on the wing of abominations, the sacrifices will cease. That halfway through the tribulation period, Antichrist is going to put a stop to it and declare himself to be God. So, so we know during that tribulational period, the Jewish people will have restarted the sacrifices. But in the millennial kingdom, why would God require animal sacrifice in the millennium? There are some who are very upset by this. There are some who say it's blasphemous against Jesus and His sacrifice to say that there will be sacrificial offerings in the Millennial Kingdom. Well, whether or not you have a, a comfort with this, it's here. So, first thing to note about the sacrifices is that it's here. God says this is what's going to happen. Well, I don't like that. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Some will say the entire book of Hebrews nullifies any future offerings, so Ezekiel must have gotten it wrong. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 does truly say the following. Let me read it to you. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Note that. But He, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The priests don't get to sit. They've got to keep standing. It's like working at McDonald's. You've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. That's all I learned in the two months I worked there in high school. <laughs> Hated that. Rick, you got time to lean, you got time to clean. <sighs> no, I'm leaning on the broom. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Jesus sat down. Why? Because the work's done. There's no, no reason to be standing up. There's nothing else to do. It's finished. Waiting from that time forward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Absolutely true. Jesus did. The sanctification, the redemption has happened. No other sacrifice for sin is needed. And no other sacrifice can redeem. And that's the point of the sacrifices both in ancient Israel and in the Millennial Kingdom. 
And perhaps this will help you to understand the Jewish offerings prior to Calvary did not redeem the people. They never did. They never functioned to, to forgive sin. They functioned for atonement. Bible students, that word atonement means? Covering. They covered sin so that God could continue to interact with His people, but the sin didn't go away. The sin was still there. There was no redemption in the Jewish sacrificial system. It was just atonement until the crucifixion of Christ was accomplished. And then atonement gives way to propitiation or redemption with a complete washing. Romans 3 verse 25 says our justification comes as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. He skipped over them. I'm going to give you atonement. We'll cover that. I'll move on to the other side. And then when Jesus is sacrificed... All that sin that was just covered up, we'll just rip the covering right off that and wash it away. Well, how do I get that? By faith in the crucifixion of Jesus. If you died before Jesus' crucifixion, it was faith in the Lord God that He was going to bring Messiah as He promised. And in that faith, that atoned for sin now is washed. Now if that faith doesn't come, the atoned for sin is just uncovered. And it remains. The original sacrifices did not redeem. And if the past sacrificial system was not for redemption, neither will be the future sacrificial system. It's not what it's about. Okay, so what's it for? Well, let's make a comparison. What is the Lord's Supper all about? Why do we do that week in and week out? Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11.26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We take the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis for commemoration of His cross and as a proclamation of His redemption. We proclaim His death until He comes. We tell anybody who's asking. And by the way, our taking of communion is not only a personal thing between me and the Lord. It's not only a communal thing between me and you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an evangelical thing. So that non-believers, if they come in on a Sunday morning, see us do that and say, what are you doing? What's that all about? And if you ever bring a friend and they, and they loudly say, hey, what's going on? Don't go, shh, I'm being holy. <laughs> Obviously you don't understand that. Or I wouldn't have dragged you in here, sinner. You know? Take the opportunity. It is a proclamation of redemption. Well, this, this cracker represents the body of Jesus. This juice represents His blood. It reminds us that He redeemed us from our sins. And by the way, you can be redeemed too. Today, right now. And so we take communion as that commemoration and that proclamation. And my friends, I believe the sacrifices in the kingdom are for the exact same reason. Yeah, the blood sacrifice. That's, that's awfully Jewish. It's a Jewish kingdom. Welcome to it. Children are going to be born in that kingdom age. Children who don't have the benefit of our historical knowledge, who didn't see this whole thing through from this side of the return of Jesus. They just are born after the return of Jesus, coming in at that time. Isaiah 65 and 66. Check it out. 
So these children born are going to need instruction for generations across that millennial reign. And remember what Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So it's instructive. It's proclaiming with every lamb that is sacrificed a proclamation. You, can you imagine? You can watch the lamb sacrifice and then you can look up and see the lamb, Jesus Christ. And realize what He did. And have a graphic representation of that. I like this also that Feinberg said. He said, since Israel did not receive their Messiah in His first coming, they've never celebrated a memorial of His redeeming work. Need we begrudge them this in light of the fact that the Scriptures are so clear that God has appointed the sacrifices for that age and surely for their commemorative value. And with every sacrifice during the kingdom age, people will praise Jesus for His sacrifice that happened previously at Calvary. So the sacrificial system, it absolutely makes sense to me. If you're an animal rights activist, uh, you know, God bless you, but it's going to happen. Besides, they're His animals, not yours. Uh, Also, in addition to all of this, Exact specifications, the East Gate, the establishment of the sacrificial system. We see also in verse 44, the employment of singers. Employed singers. Verse 44, from the outside to the inner gate were chambers for the singers. I love that. What a cool thing. Why do they have singers there while the sacrifices are going on? Because in the Jewish mind, the sacrifices were first and foremost worship. That's what they were for. That's how they acted out their worship. Oftentimes ankle deep in the blood of sacrificed animals as the priests were sacrificing, that worship went on. And David saw to that. David made sure in 1 Chronicles 16, he employed temple musicians so that there would be ongoing and constant worship in the temple courts. Any time of day you went up to temple, you would hear them worshiping and praising the Lord. The employed singers. We also see there in verse 46, the esteemed sons. The surveyor points out the sons of Zadok. A uniquely privileged lineage there of the larger lineage of the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. Out of that tribe was a certain group, the sons of Zadok, who had a very, very special privilege to minister directly to the Lord. That was their job. That will be their job in the coming kingdom. Their ministry will not be to people outside. It will be directly ministering to and for Jesus there in the temple. And we're going to talk about why in a later study, perhaps next Wednesday night. But I just point that out right now to say, do you realize, do you understand, do we get that our ministry as a royal priesthood is first to the Lord and then to His people? first to the Lord, and then to people. Jesus made it very clear, Matthew 22.37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That's the big one. That's the focus. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think sometimes we flip that upside down. You know, in the church we spend all our time ministering to the people, and we forget that our first calling is to the Lord. To minister to Him. Lord, what pleases You? What would You like? How can I serve You today? Lord, how can I serve You today? 
Your ministry is first to Him, and then second to His people.